This is Fullness of Life, discussing topics important to your life of faith and ways to grow in a life of grace. Join us each month as we inspire listeners to a deeper relationship with the Lord to live His fullness of life. Now, here's your host, Letty Medina. Welcome, everyone. This is Letty Medina with Fullness of Life on 88.5 Antioch Catholic Radio. And today I have uh, the honor of interviewing um, my pastor, Father John Curzon, from St. Gilbert Church. Welcome, Father John. Thank you. I really appreciate your willingness to come on the the show with me. Um, Again, my show, Fullness of Life. I love to talk about all things uh, regarding Jesus Christ and heaven and holiness and our pursuit of holiness. And I happen to know, I've heard you preach several times on the fact that you have a real love for the Shroud of Turin. And here it is, uh, we're in the month of March and uh, the season of Lent. And as we journey towards heaven together as a people of God, I thought it would be a wonderful time to have you on to talk about some of these these things that you really love investigating. So why don't we start um, with just the basics, like what is the Shroud of Turin, so that our listeners can have a better understanding of it. Okay, great. The Shroud of Turin is a burial shroud. Uh, it is a cloth that uh, is very fine linen. It, it it measures 14 feet long by about three feet wide. And it was used, we believe, as the burial cloth of Jesus. I think to get started with the real basics on uh, looking into the Shroud of Turin, I think it'd be helpful to go to the scriptures and hear what Luke has to say in his narrative. Luke actually, I think, um, does a really good job of um, talking about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord. And to me, all of these things, of course, go together, and the Shroud um, sort of tells its own story Um, in the words of Luke's gospel. So let's go to Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 50. This is the story of the the burial of Jesus. Now there was a virtuous and righteous man named Joseph, who, though he was a member of the council, had not consented to their plan of action. He came from the Jewish town of Arimathea and was awaiting the kingdom of God. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. After he had taken the body down, he wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a rock-hewn tomb in which no one had yet been buried. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come from Galilee with him followed behind, and when they had seen the tomb and the way in which his body was laid in it, they returned and prepared spices and perfumed oils, Then they rested on the Sabbath, according to the commandment. And then we go into chapter 24, which is the story of the Lord's resurrection. But at daybreak, on the first day of the week, they took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. When they were puzzling over this, behold, two men in dazzling garments appeared to them. They were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. They said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has been raised. Remember what he said to you while he was still in Galilee, 
that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners, and be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and announced all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And so that right there is the beginning of the church. Can you explain what you mean by that is the beginning of the church? What we celebrate as as uh, Christian people is the fact that the Lord is alive and that the Lord has overcome death by his own death and resurrection, his own death on the cross and his resurrection. So we are a people of the resurrection. And that's why the shroud is so important is because I think what it what it is actually is a it's it's a it's a tangible visible sign of the resurrection of the Lord. Okay, yeah, I can see your point uh, about why the resurrection is the defining moment for us as believers that Christ conquered death and thereby won our salvation. So, Father John, why don't we get back to um, just explaining some of the history of the shroud and how people can kind of understand a little bit more about it. Okay, very cool. So uh, the shroud is uh, is made of a linen uh, that is traceable to the time of Christ, to the first century. That's verified. Uh, the material has been studied, and it's confirmed that um, it has survived all through these years through careful handling and storage. It's displayed only rarely, but uh, the cloth made its way uh, to Constantinople and was housed uh, uh, after the time of the Lord in the period of the early church in Constantinople. And then it made its way around to different churches in Europe, in the west of Europe, um, until it made its way to, uh, I believe it was either France or Italy, it was housed in a church that caught fire. This was in Italy. It was housed in a church in Italy. The church caught fire. This was in 1534. And so parts of the shroud had to be replaced because there were char marks on the shroud itself. Um, but, you know, it was the sense of the faithful. We call that the census fidelium in theological terms that this is authentic, that this is the burial shroud of the Lord. And for all those centuries, uh, it was kept in Antioch for a while, in ancient Antioch, which today is in Turkey. It's in uh, it's uh, Antakya in Turkey. Um, finally, it made its way to the Cathedral of St. John the Baptist in Turin in Italy, which is where it is today, the Duomo. Uh, in Italian, it's called the Santa Sindona, the Holy Shroud, the Holy Cloth. Um, and it's kept in a reliquary there. And it's displayed only rarely. But um, due to that fire, uh, there are pieces of it that had to be cut out and replaced. It was only about, uh, about 120 or 130 years ago that a photographic image was made of the shroud in which the image of Christ became visible. It's very interesting because of the way the body of Jesus was wrapped in the shroud. So rather than being wrapped around, it was wrapped uh, lengthwise from head to foot. So it's a 14-foot shroud uh, that covered the Lord. Um, his body was laid on the bottom part of the shroud, and then it was pulled over. It, the, the shroud is just one single long piece of cloth. And so the image of the Lord was encoded or imprinted on the inside of the shroud 
from the bottom part and the top part. It's kind of hard to describe unless you have like some visuals, but if you can just imagine the letter C, except instead of round, it's more flat, flattened. Um, so the body of Jesus was, was placed inside the shroud and then covered over. And uh, so today the shroud is still kept at the, uh, at the uh, cathedral in Turin. And it's displayed, like I said, it's displayed only rarely, but it's been studied so much uh, over the centuries. Uh, but it's only when the last, uh, in the, about the last 50 years or 40 or even 30 years that really intense, very specialized scientific research has been done in the shroud that verify what we've believed about the shroud for all these centuries, that it in fact is the burial cloth of the Lord. And I can get into that uh, in, in more detail. So can you get into the details about what the image contains? Sure. It's very, very fascinating because what the image shows is that there is rigor mortis in the feet that shows that the victim was on a cross for a significant amount of time after he had died. So um, that there are two nails through one foot, but only one of the nails is through the other foot. This allows one foot to rotate so that the person on the cross can push up and down on the cross in order to breathe during crucifixion. Um, the soldiers had no doubt that Jesus had in fact died because he, toward the end of his time on the cross, he wasn't pushing up and down on the, on the cross. So there's just no question that uh, what we see on the image is exactly what's described in the account, the scriptural account of Jesus's crucifixion. I'm reading through this fact sheet because it's really, really interesting. I wrote down some facts, some information about the image itself, um, because uh, this is, uh, it's very detailed stuff, and I'd, I'd like to present this clearly. Uh, so in 1532, the church where the shroud was located caught fire. Um, the shroud produced two scorch lines on either side of the front, and there are water stains that are visible as well. The heat from the fire did not produce a a gradation in the intensity of the image discoloration, which indicates that the image is not due to the application of an organic compound. <laughs> in other words, there's no pigment on the shroud. So what we see was imprinted by the body itself. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it was impossible that anybody came and drew a picture of the Lord's body on the cross, uh, uh, on the shroud. It just can't be done. Uh, there was no technology for that. There was no pigment available that could create uh, that kind of image, imprint that kind of image on the shroud. The, the shroud shows the scourge marks from two Roman weapons that were used striking the Lord on each side. Um, and there, are, uh, there, there was blood that uh, came out from the wounds um, there are abrasions on the shoulders, evidently caused by Jesus carrying a rough, heavy uh, object, the cross itself. The front and back of the head show puncture wounds from sharp objects mm. that Jesus had a cap of thorns beat into his scalp with rods. So we read that in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel. Yep. Another thing really interesting is that there is pollen on the shroud that is unique to the area around Jerusalem. Pollen from a plant with long thorns is found around his head. Interesting. That's a discovery that was only made, you know, within the, the last 50 years or so. Right now, because of the technology we have, we can really zoom in on this stuff and we can tell what these little microscopic particles are from the plants that were in Jerusalem at that time. And it was spring. Yep. So, so there, were, there was pollen in the air that came from plants that were budding. Fascinating. Um, the image on the shroud has swollen cheeks and possibly a broken nose from beatings. And there are abrasions on the tip of the nose 
that have a microscopic amount of dirt in the abrasions. That's from Jesus falling three times. Wow. And so then there's also blood uh, that's very visible on the shroud. And the, the shroud shows that the thumb was folded under, which, um, uh, which supports the view that the nails were driven through the, the wrists rather than the palms of the hands, mm-hmm. right? So this is all kind of gruesome stuff, but it shows up on the shroud is what's recorded in the scripture, what tradition has long held about the event of the crucifixion of the Lord. What I find the most interesting is that there are small chips of travertine aragonite limestone found in the dirt near the feet of Jesus. So they look mm-hmm. very closely at these microscopic little particles of limestone chips that were down near his feet. It's a rare form of limestone that's called Jerusalem limestone because Jerusalem is the main location in the world where it's found. Now, the limestone found in the dirt on the shroud has uh, a, a sort of a signature um, makeup to it that is identical to limestone taken from the Damascus Gate, which is the closest gate to Golgotha, the place where Jesus was crucified. Wow. No other place on earth is known to have the identical kind of limestone chips or particles. This indicates that the victim whose image is on the shroud probably walked on the streets of Jerusalem just before being crucified. Wow. So, I mean, the evidence is just overwhelming that this is indeed, you know, the burial cloth of Jesus and that this image uh, encoded on the shroud itself is, in fact, uh, the Lord. And Though there are, uh, you know, the, the the all of this points to a conclusion. It leads to a conclusion on the part of the researchers and scientists that, yeah, this is in fact, uh, it, there's very strong reason to believe that this is in fact the burial shroud of the Lord. Yeah, and I and I appreciate you going into those details because when I heard you preach about it one day, I, I can't remember exactly the words you used, but you you said something to the effect that it really kind of inspires you or maybe it buoys up your faith a bit to know and believe that this is very likely the cloth in which our Lord was buried. Yeah. It's very fascinating uh, to get into kind of the historical details. But the next thing to really look at is how the image got imprinted onto the shroud. So this is the thing that really mystifies the scientists, because in order for the image to be imprinted on the shroud, there would have to have been an enormous amount of radiation that was produced by the body itself, because there was nothing else that could have imprinted the image onto the cloth. So what they're saying is that there was... a a supernatural event that occurred with this body that was wrapped in the shroud and it whatever event this was produced radiation a hundred thousand times greater than the blast that occurred with the atomic bomb in hiroshima just studying the the event of the release of the uh, atomic energy at that point, m- multiply that by 100,000, and that's the amount of radiation that would have to have burst out from this body in order for the image to be imprinted on it the way it was. Because if you look, it's really, really fascinating stuff to mm-hmm. get into this, to get into like the minute details of the science of it, because for the image to have been imprinted on it, there would have to have been some sort of blast that just produced the image and caused it to be imprinted on just the very top surface part of the fibers of the shroud itself. So what some of the best (laughs) nuclear scientists, physicists in the world are saying is that 
yes, this is unexplainable. It's a mystery, but it had to have been a, a blast of radiation greater than 100,000 times that which uh, was released by the atomic bomb in Hiroshima that could have caused a shadow or an image like that to be imprinted permanently on uh, cloth. They're calling it encoding and not even imprinting front and back. And so in the end, it's a mystery, isn't it? I mean, in the sense that, yes, science can reveal that it's beyond our human understanding to really wrap our minds around that much power Yeah. to create such an image. Absolutely. And really, the only explanation that uh, can be offered for it is the resurrection, the event of the supernatural event of the resurrection itself and the power of that in that single moment, the the. If you can imagine that, if you could just have been there, right, standing right outside, because, I mean, this really happened. It really yes. happened. And we know it really happened because you can see it. You can check this out on the image itself. You can actually see how it's imprinted front and back. You can read it and research it. And the scientists simply have no way to typically explain how that image got imprinted. Because even in the Middle Ages, even today, the technology doesn't exist to produce an image like that. So what they're saying is this is an, we, there's just no explanation for it scientifically other than what's offered in the scriptures, which is the account of the resurrection, that there was this burst, there was this blast of divine power um, that came from the body itself, not from outside the body but that yeah. from the body itself. And that is, you know, the the body coming to life, the body being resurrected, you know. Yes, exactly. Being resurrected and, and the Lord rising in glory. I mean, that's Easter. That's Easter morning, you know. Beautiful, um, beautiful. Well, it is time for a commercial break, but don't go away. We'll, we'll be right back after this short break. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is blessed with the opportunity to participate with WSFI Catholic Radio in the new evangelization. Holy Family is your local resource for books, CDs, and DVDs from Catholic Answers, Ignatius Press, and all of the other fine publishers featured on Catholic Radio. Holy Family also has the area's largest selection of baptism, communion, and confirmation gifts. Holy Family Catholic Bookstore is located at 9249 Old Green Bay Road, Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. More information is available on Facebook. A prayer for deliverance with Father John Grigas Town. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus Christ, we just ask for the grace of the Holy Spirit to come down upon us, the intercession of Our Lady and of all the saints and angels, and we come against any influence of the occult or the New Age that might have infiltrated any of our listeners, their children, their grandchildren, their nieces, nephews, brothers, and sisters, and families, and we bind Satan and all of his minions in any way that have bound any of these individuals or their families in this occult practices, and we invoke Mother Mary, also in all the saints in the name of Jesus by the blood of Jesus I just break all bounds and all influences of the new age upon any one of our listeners and may they be broken in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit may he send upon them the grace of the Holy Spirit to free them and may our mother Mary place her mother in the mantle to protect them and crush the head of the evil one as she was promised to do so in Genesis after the fall Amen
Are you retired or near retirement? Do you want to keep a larger amount of your assets in a safe place with guaranteed interest rates to protect yourself from a huge market swing? Are you amazed at how low the interest rates are at your bank? If you said yes to any or all of those questions, you may want to call me, Matt Tomlinson, at Catholic Financial Life to discuss our guaranteed fixed rate annuities. Call 847-548-MATT, 847-548-6288. Products not available in all states. Father John Curzon from St. Gilbert Church in Grays Lake, and he's been talking a lot about the Shroud of Turin and some of his um, reading and uh, understanding of the research that's been done. You know, Father John, at this point, I'd like to know, have you ever been able to go to an exhibit? I I know the Shroud itself is protected and rarely put out for viewing, um, but have you have you been able to go to an exhibit? Yeah, in fact, that pilgrimage group that visited Rome, this was about three years ago now, we made our way to the Basilica of St. John Lateran in Rome, which is actually the cathedral church of the city, and that's where the Pope himself has his cathedral chair. So it's a very important uh, pilgrimage site in the city of Rome and, and really a beautiful place. Right across the street is where the holy stairs are. These are the stairs that Jesus climbed on his way to his trial with Pilate. So it's well worth a visit to see that too and to pray on the steps. Right down the street from St. John Lateran is a beautiful old church called the Church of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem. And you can go there and visit and you will see a relic of the, uh, of the true cross and, and, and pray. Just after you visit that, after you see the relic of the true cross, uh, just to the right of that, as you're making your way out, there is an exhibit there dedicated to the Shroud of Turin. And uh, there's a uh, there's a picture of the image itself. And you can see the negative image of the, the, the physical body of Christ. And then it goes into great detail explaining what the Shroud is and and why we should believe that it is the authentic burial shroud of the Lord. And it's very well presented and it's done in such a way that it really, it helps you understand and relate the story about the death and resurrection of the Lord with this real life piece of cloth, which scientists even, you know, who are naturally skeptical uh, and are always looking for proof and verification say is the authentic burial shroud of the Lord. So what it does is it connects faith with science. I think this is, this is my, you know, is that faith and science are not opposed to each other. That in this case, science actually points to the truth of the burial shroud of Jesus, that this is the authentic shroud of the burial of the Lord, but that this piece of cloth is itself a witness to the event of the resurrection because it's as if the the resurrection of the Lord is imprinted, actually imprinted on this image by the power of that radiation that I was talking about that was that came from the body of the Lord and imprinted itself. So here what we see is reason and faith at work together, appealing to the heart of the pilgrim, the visitor who comes to the church and reads this and sees it and says, wow, how can this be? And the church says, well, let us explain this to you. This is what we see on the shroud. This is what we read in the scriptures, and they connect together. They fit together. So what we see, what we what we discover in science through our research and through verification, 
and scientific method we read about in the scripture, in the gospel accounts of what happened to Jesus, uh, that he was tried, that he was beaten, uh, that he was crucified, that he died, he was buried. There are, uh, you can look uh, and um, read on this exhibit at the church about the the elements that were wrapped in the burial shroud with the Lord, there are, there are signs of myrrh, um, which was, of course, used in the preparation of a body of a deceased person. Flowers, uh, as it says in the, in the scripture as well, all of these things are found with the body. There are drops of wax. So it's possible that when the people uh, that we read about in the scripture were about the work of preparing the body, they were holding candles because it was dark. So the wax, some of the wax dripped down onto the cloth. You know, all all these things, they sound anecdotal, but they're really not. They're, they're things that connect the story in the scriptures with what the science is saying definitively is present on the shroud. So it's as if faith and reason or faith and science are hand in hand here. John Paul II said that truth can never contradict truth. So the truth that is verified in science, according to what we see on the shroud, verifies and, and stands together with the truth that's proclaimed in the Gospels, in the Scripture. So what that does for me personally is it says, yes, this happened, this really happened, that this man is who he said he is, that he is the son of the living God. And yes, it is true, as some of my more skeptical friends say, people don't rise from the dead. How can you believe that? Well, you know, the truth is God can do what God wants to do. And if God decides to die on a cross for me and for my salvation and for you and yours and for all of our listeners as well, if we accept that in faith, then we share in that divine life, which is an awesome mystery, but which is also true. It's it's true. You can you can put your faith in that. You can you can invest your whole eternity on the truth that is to be discovered with this and the truth that's to be explored here. I think that's part of the beauty of the season of Lent is it gives us the opportunity to kind of step back and take the time to, to seriously learn about this, to seriously reflect on it, to pray on it, to pray the mysteries of the, the Lord's suffering and death, to pray on the mystery of the Lord's resurrection and ascension and to ask the Lord to help deepen our faith. I think that, you know, the Lord intentionally left things like this behind uh, the relics of the, of the cross, the relics of the crown of thorns, the shroud itself. The Lord willed that his image be encoded, imprinted on this cloth as a way for us to look and to, to see with eyes of faith and to say, Jesus says, look, see, look. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, I'm, I'm leaving this behind so that it, it will help you uh, embrace the truth of the, the resurrection, the mystery of the resurrection, you know. And it also points to what we see on the body itself, which are the wounds from the scourging, the wounds on his head from the cap of the thorns. You know, so, so all of these things, all of this science fits together with the narrative that is shared in the scriptures. You see what I'm saying? So Absolutely. Again, back to what John Paul says, truth never contradicts truth. And so the truth that we see in this image is borne out and, 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 and realized through the, the, the scientific methods and, 
and the 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 research that we're able to do today because we have the technology you know we have the um we have the capability to discover so many new things now because um so you know science has these tools available to it to analyze the fibers and to um to really zoom in on the 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 microscopic detail of the shroud um it does to me it absolutely does point to the the um the authenticity of the shroud and the scientists uh, um, speak for themselves in saying, yes, we do believe we, there's just no other way to explain how that image got imprinted. Um, <laughs> it's exciting stuff. It really is. It's exciting. So, it is. So when you, when you see this exhibit at the shrine of the, uh, uh, at the church of the Holy cross, uh, you come away with just a whole new sense of hope, a whole new sense of, understanding um of, of of what this event was and 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 wow you know how two thousand years later how two thousand years later um we can say yes we can affirm that faith that we have you know in the truth the resurrection and that what the people knew then we know now you know the faith of the apostles is kept pure in its in its uh, in its wholeness you know christ died and that he rose and he ascended and he sent his spirit, you know, to give us life, you know. Exactly. What's well, beautiful, beautiful to really reflect upon all of this that you've shared. Um, you know, you talked about the fact that you went on this pilgrimage to Rome. So I think it's a perfect kind of transition into that topic of pilgrimage and the fact that we as a church are supposed to be walking together towards the kingdom of heaven, right? Yeah. What are your thoughts about the whole topic of pilgrimage and why people should consider going on pilgrimages? Yeah, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Well, as for any Catholic, for any Christian believer, is to connect with other Christians and to go to places that are of great significance to our faith. Pilgrimage places draw us really to the Lord, to one another, and help us to go within, you know, help us to um, reflect and kind of go within ourselves to renew our faith, uh, to um, there's a wellspring that the Lord wants us to drink from. Um, pilgrimage is, is, I think, is an essential part of what it means to be a Christian because we are pilgrim people. We are on a journey to heaven, on a journey together. We're not, we're not on this alone. We're not, you know, you can't be a pilgrim alone. But I'll just say this: uh, pilgrimage can change your life. Now, I, I know we've heard many, many stories of people here in the parish. Uh, on how pilgrimage changes your life. It changes your life spiritually. It changes your life personally. It changes your married life. It changes your priestly life. Um, uh, it, 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 is a, it is a transformational experience. And I think that God certainly wants to come close to us uh, as we uh, journey, as we, as we go on pilgrimage, you know, and Lent itself is a time of pilgrimage. You know, we are on our way to the destination of Holy Week. Our destination is the celebration of the Paschal Mysteries of the Lord. And so we have milestones that help us. You know, we have opportunities for uh, prayer, for fasting, for almsgiving, for um, for uh, for reflection. Uh, and And we can decide for ourselves where we want to stop on our pilgrimage, what we want to do. And uh, all of these things are intended to help us grow closer to the Lord and, and, and grow 
deeper in our faith and to learn, explore, discover new things about our faith that the Lord wants to reveal to us. We don't have enough time in this show, but I can tell you stories uh, about my own pilgrimage journeys and how they have affected my life, not just as a priest, but as a Christian believer, you know, and uh, they involve uh, the Lord uh, in the Eucharist. They involve the Blessed Mother. You know, uh, she um, is is one who especially calls us to be pilgrim people and uh, to think seriously about um, making a pilgrimage. I think pilgrimage should be a really, really important part of the life of every every Christian. The thing about pilgrimage is it, it's not intended to be a vacation. You know, pilgrimage is not a vacation. A pilgrimage is something, is something different from a vacation. You know, the ideal vacation would be, you know, to go find a nice quiet beach in Florida, you know, and find a palm tree or, you know, uh, uh, just relax, uh, you know, with a good book or with your family or friends um, and just kind of hang out. Well, that no, that's not what pilgrimage is. That's not what you do on a pilgrimage, you know. Pilgrimage can be exhausting. It can be, um, uh, it's also very exciting, but it's an opportunity to become new again in your faith and not just to see the world and not just to see important sites, but to really uh, help, tra- it, it's, a, it's an experience that transforms your faith. It really does. It transforms you personally and it transforms your faith. Yeah, I, I want to affirm everything you just said about pilgrimages. Um, as you know, Father John, I also was radically transformed when I went on a pilgrimage to Medjugorje in 1997. In fact, that is the defining moment for me when I truly gave my life more fully to Christ. And he literally kind of filled me with grace and a, a conversion of heart. And I really, my whole life was, was completely changed after that one week or 10 day pilgrimage. Um, so I want to encourage the listeners, uh, if you've never been on a pilgrimage, please pray about going on a pilgrimage once things open up again. Um, if you have been on a pilgrimage, but maybe it's been a while, go on another one. Like it, it is such a gift um, when we're able to take time away and we're able to really focus on um, seeking a deeper walk with the Lord, learning more about our faith. I mean, it can really be just such a life-giving experience. You meet other people who are also seeking a deeper walk with the Lord, which is always a, a wonderful experience. And it doesn't even have to be going overseas or anything. I mean, you can go to a pilgrimage um, to Holy Hill in Wisconsin. You can go to Our Lady of Good Help, uh, also in Wisconsin. You can go to, you know, um, a shrine down in, you know, Marytown, not, not even 15, 20 minutes from where we live in Grace Lake. Like, Go and spend time learning and seeking, um, and it really will enhance your journey of faith. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah, wow. How, I, I've been to Medjugorje myself, too, uh, uh, and just found it to be an amazing place. And I even had the um, privilege of proclaiming the gospel there, and I heard the the gospel kind of reverberating off of the mountains, which is just an experience I'll never forget. But um, also... Um, heard confessions there for uh, quite a period, a long period of time out in the rain. And there were people who came to confession that hadn't been to confession in 30 years, 40 years, you know, people that had been away from the church for that length of time. And 
and I did hear back from one or two of those people, and they said not only did that experience bring them back to the life of the church, but it brought them back together with their families again. They were reconciled with their families. So, you know, Beautiful. so there are miracles. You know, you have to, you almost have to kind of expect miracles to happen. You know, uh, miracles yeah. are the direct intervention of the Lord. And that's what the Lord loves to do and wants to do in our lives is, is, uh, is renew us, you know, make us new again. But I got to say this, um, an experience that um, really, really, um, changed my whole spiritual life uh, was the opportunity we had a couple of years ago now to visit uh, the church in England where St. Gilbert is from. Uh, mm -hmm. So if we have more time, I can get into that and just kind of share with you the, the kind of like the real behind the scenes story of what happened there. That sounds great. So don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Hello, I'm Father James Gavicki, the U.S. Director of the Apostleship of Prayer, and I ask you to support Catholic Radio in your area because Catholic Radio is the way that we can get the word out today. It's Catholic evangelization at its best, and I've heard conversion stories all over the place because of people who have tuned in as they're driving or in their homes, listening to Catholic Radio by accident, and the Lord touching their hearts through the message they heard. WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio is committed to bringing quality Catholic programs to our local community. We only can do that with your financial support. Take a moment now to donate online at wsfiradio.org or mail your tax-deductible donation to WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. That's WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio, P.O. Box 885, Libertyville, Illinois 60048. Donations of any amount are greatly appreciated. have Father John Curzon from St. Gilbert Parish in Grays Lake with me, and he's been talking about all sorts of things regarding um, the faith journey, um, one of them being the Shroud of Turn and his fascination and study of that beautiful uh, relic that we believe is the Shroud that Christ himself was buried in. And then we've been talking a little bit about pilgrimages and his love of pilgrimages, and I'm affirming that love myself because it was life-changing for me. Um, but one of the pilgrimages that he'd really like to share is is the one that uh, he and several parishioners took a couple of years ago to the United Kingdom to the original church of St. Gilbert, Saint, the real Saint Gilbert. So why don't we hear a little bit about that, Father John? Okay, great. I appreciate that very much. Um, that was, uh, I would say that that was probably the high point of my whole priesthood so far, being on that, Beautiful. Being, on, being on that retreat. And I'll tell you where it started. I really believe it was uh, divine uh, inspiration. It was like the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this was Christmas uh, two, two years ago. Uh, I was uh, talking. I was up at the pulpit delivering a message of some kind or another. Uh, and, and I thought about uh, how is Christmas celebrated at the church where St. Gilbert is from in England? Because something that's important to keep in mind about St. Gilbert is people ask me about him all the time. Most people have absolutely no idea who St. Gilbert is. 
And, and really what they're fascinated with is how did our parish get to be named after an unknown saint from the high Middle Ages? And mm-hmm. why is nothing known about St. Gilbert today? Really, the, about the only thing people know about St. Gilbert is that he was English and that his feast day is the 4th of February because we celebrate it every year. So I became kind of curious about Christmas, where St. Gilbert is from in England. So I did some research online and I found a website for the actual parish church where St. Gilbert was the pastor 900 years ago. Amazing. And so this is called Sempringham Abbey because the area that St. Gilbert is from is called Sempringham. It's kind of swampland. It's a combination of swampland and farmland. So it's not unlike where we are right here in northeastern Illinois. It's a combination of farmland, lakes, swamps. You have the only thing we don't have around here is an ocean, although we have an inland ocean. Lake Michigan is just to our east, but we don't have mountains. (laughs) You know, we don't have hill country, stuff like that. So that's what this place is like in England. It's kind of flat land. It's a little bit swampy in places. It's it's uh, it, it, there's a lot of farm uh, land around and um, no mountains, no hills, uh, <laughs> you know, and there are lots of irrigation canals around all over the place. So anyway, I was uh, I was I was very curious. I thought, well, I wonder how they celebrate Christmas there at Sempringham Abbey, because I read a little bit about the history and I found out that the church itself was built by St. Gilbert's father in the in the year eleven hundred. Wow. So, I mean, that's going back a long, long way, you know. So, so I checked, I, I started doing more research and I found out that at Christmas time every year they have a little service there called the Wrap Up Warm or Freeze Pilgrimage. Have I ever told you the story about this? No. That time of the year, you have to dress warmly, put on your hat, your gloves, your warm jacket, and your boots. And come to church to celebrate the birth of the Lord. They don't have mass in the church. They have uh, kind of like a, a short service of music. They sing together and then they have what's called a crib service. So they um, have prayers of uh, Jesus born in the manger and, the, and they celebrate kind of a pre-Christmas. It's like a, it's like a Christmas Eve night celebration. It happens on Christmas Eve night. And it's a pilgrimage because people come from all over the countryside from a distance of uh, maybe 10 or 20 miles all around. Beautiful. And they come out to this little country church that's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but it's historic, very historic because it's so old. And it has a direct connection to St. Gilbert because he was the first pastor of that parish church, the Sempringham Abbey Parish Church. That's amazing. And he was also the founder of a religious order that became known as the Gilbertines. And that was their first house, their first priory. Uh, it was built just to the sort of southwest of where the uh, Abbey Church is, where the uh, that's still visible today, that's still there today. Um, and so the reason they call it the wrap-up warm or freeze pilgrimage is because there is no heat in the church. There's no electricity. There's no running water, no facility. Oh, wow. And uh, so, uh, you know, no services uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, utilities or any of those kind of things. So um, you you sh- you have to wrap up warm or you're going to really, you're going to get chilled, you know. So 
So I thought, well, how fascinating is that? And how beautiful, how beautiful. Just a bunch of country people getting together. Many of them are probably related to each other. And they get together in this old, old church, this medieval church, and they celebrate the birth of the Lord together. And, and, and I thought to myself, oh, my goodness, we have to go there. We have to go there and we have to check this out because I felt this sense of connection with that place because of St. Gilbert and due to the fact that we're the only St. Gilbert church in the U.S., in fact, we're one, uh, as I mentioned, we're only one of three St. Gilbert churches outside of the UK in the world. So we Gilbertines are a small, we're a, just a small family of people. But I, I, I don't know what it was. I just felt this sense of connection to that place uh, because of the fact that we are named for St. Gilbert. And we really don't know much about him at all. So I said, I, I really want to go there. I want to learn more about St. Gilbert. I really want to meet these people. I want to find out what this is all about. And so I got in touch with uh, the um, pastor there. His name is Father Neil. Super nice guy. Very welcoming. Very hospitable. And he said, absolutely, come and you can have morning mass in our church and you can visit. We'll show you around. Just come on over. Beautiful. So I invited whoever wanted to to join. And there were 20 people that came along. And we flew over there and we spent a few days in the UK um, on our way down to Sempringham from the north of England. So we landed in Scotland, actually, and we spent uh, some time in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh. And then we made our way to the holy island of Lindisfarne, which is where the scriptures uh, came to this part of the world, the western part of the world. The whole story mm -hmm. behind that whole story. Mm -hmm. Very, very, very interesting place. So uh, we spent the night in York, which is a very beautiful historic city. And then the next morning we got up. And I didn't sleep much that night because I was so excited. And we got on our bus and we made our way to Semperingham. And um, and we knew we were there because we could see the church tower sticking up over the horizon. And uh, I I was just, I, it was surreal. It was like a surreal moment to me because I had dreamed about this and thought about it for so long. And, uh, and so we drove in this little country road and we drove over this little bridge. We were afraid we were going to collapse the bridge because it wasn't strong enough for our bus. And so, we, you know, we're just out in these farm fields and... So we arrive at this church and it's kind of like really quintessentially English, quintessentially European. There's a, a cemetery that surrounds the church and there are these old gravestones from like the 16th century, 17th century. Um, so, I mean, this place really has a long history to it. And so we met Father Neil and some of the people there and they were just as welcoming and just as warm and hospitable. And we went in, we had mass. And I'll tell you something, it was just the most ex amazing experience because St. Gilbert is actually buried there in that church. So wow. So, what I felt there was a combination of nervousness and excitement at the same time, because I thought, okay, uh, you know, not only am I preaching to this little group of pilgrims and to Father Neil, who was actually present with us there at the mass and to some of the local people who had joined us because they heard we were coming, bunch of yanks coming all the way over from the u.s to visit this little country church out in the middle of nowhere there was some fascination with some of the local people so they actually came and visited with us beautiful um yep. and met us and they were uh, they were uh, some of them were hysterically funny i mean they were they were, they were just <laughs> very natural very down to earth you know just great country people and so you know i i realized when i was uh, preaching that i was preaching to this little group and to St. Gilbert, because my goodness, he's buried right there. I was like, oh my goodness, 
the the sense of the sense of history, the sense of of spiritual connection to uh, a time that is nine hundred years past the the life of the church, the life of the people at that time. You know, you have this connection with them and spiritual connection. You know, it's it's part of what we mean by the communion of saints. You know, absolutely. So the experience of that was mind boggling, and and it, it really. It really, uh, it, it just, it, it was like it just opened up a whole new um, road, spiritual road for me, you know, uh, to really um, discover more about the life of St. Gilbert, the legacy, what he accomplished, um, and what he did for the church, what he did for the Lord, and what he continues to do for us today as our patron saint. He's our patron Exactly. Beautiful. So the other half of that is what happened after that as well. So we finished our mass and, and our visit. We got a little tour of the uh, shrine there of St. Gilbert and visited with the people. And then we got Father Neil's blessing and we got on the bus and made our way to our next destination, which is the shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham. So this is the other thing that has completely changed my spiritual life is this visit to this beautiful shrine. So uh, that, I mean, I could talk to you all day about that um, because uh, Our Lady really sort of reintroduced herself to me and to all of us uh, in a whole new and different and really quite unexpected way. So we got to Walsingham. It was the first time I'd been there. And I, I hadn't even really heard of it before. I heard that it was a pretty famous shrine. I knew some priests that had been there. And I know a Franciscan brother who actually spent time working there uh, his brother Franciscan still staff the shrine uh, today. So we made our way to Walsingham and I, I got off the bus and I looked around and I fell in love. I absolutely mm. fell in love with this place. And we had time to have some lunch, visit a little bit. We prayed and walked around. And then we heard all about the history of it and what happened there and how it got to be what it was for hundreds of years. And then how sadly it fell into ruin, but then how it was rediscovered and how today it's a, a very popular pilgrimage destination in not just the UK, but all over Europe. There are people from all over the world who come to visit. What's interesting about Walsingham is that there are actually it's a it's a it's a um, it's devoted to the Blessed Mother, but there are actually four shrines there and they are all neighbors to each other. And they work together on all kinds of different things. So there is a, a Roman Catholic shrine. And then right down the street from there is an Anglican shrine, Church of England shrine. And then up the street from there is a Methodist shrine, Methodist church dedicated to the Blessed Mother. And there's an Orthodox shrine. And they're all Beautiful. friends and collaborators. And to me, what that revealed was an important lesson uh, for all of us. And that is how the Blessed Mother is going to lead the church back to, to unity, to reunification. And I was astounded there to learn how seriously and earnestly the people there are praying for the unity of the church. Beautiful. For the reunification of the whole body of Christ around who? Around the Blessed Mother. He's yeah. calling all of us back to full communion in her son through herself, through the work that she's doing 
in drawing people to this beautiful place. Beautiful. And and something that you really you have to spend a little bit of time there to to really learn and discover. Uh, and I, I, I again I could go on all day, but the what what the one of the there there are two things that are really sort of central to the experience of visiting this place. One of them is called the Holy House of Nazareth. The shrine got started actually; it had its origins in a uh, revelation to a, a local um, noblewoman living there in the village that uh, the Blessed Mother had in mind for her to build a shrine there in Walsingham. And what the shrine was to contain was uh, a reproduction of the Holy House of Nazareth where the Annunciation took place. The angel Gabriel came and appeared to the Blessed Mother and announced that she was going to be the Mother of God. And so so uh, Lady Rochelle—this is her name—and she received the, this message from the Blessed Mother. She understood it to be direction from the Blessed Mother to build the holy, a replica of the Holy House in Walsingham, and so she did that. And that was in 1061. Wow. And from 1061 until 1538, this was one of the four most popular pilgrim destinations in the world. So there was, wow. uh, Jerusalem. Rome, Santiago, and Walsingham. And, Beautiful. Um, so there were uh, countless pilgrims that came to visit this place. And there were uh, kings, royalty, distinguished people. There were the poor, uh, everybody um, uh, who, could, who could endure the trip um, made the pilgrimage to Walsingham, uh, seeking the help of the Blessed Mother for their families, for their intentions, and sadly, in 1538, uh, the place fell into ruin. And, and at that time, also, there were churches, monasteries all over England that were closed and that were demolished. So yeah. more recently, within about the last 25 years, there were pieces of those ruined churches and monasteries and convents that were retrieved and that were all fitted back together again. All these pieces, they're stones that were taken from the ruins of these churches and monasteries and other places, shrines and other things that were demolished in the uh, dissolution by Henry VIII. And these pieces were put back together again to create an altar in the contemporary shrine of Our Lady of Walsingham. Mm, how beautiful. As a symbol of the rebuilding of the church, the rebuilding I of love the that. church, the rebuilding of unity in the church. And so, you know, when you hear the story of this, it just, uh, it is, it's, it's, it's so awesome. It's, uh, it's almost beyond words because what it is, is it's not, it, it's the work of the Blessed Mother. You can attribute it to no one other than the Blessed Mother. It's her will that the church be one yes, and that people are drawn to her people, whether you're Roman Catholic, whether you're Anglican, whether you're Methodist, whether you're Orthodox, the call is to, to come together as the, the one body of Christ, the, the, the one church of the Lord. This is the will of God for the church. It even says in the scripture, it's it's the it's it's the will of Christ that there be one flock, one shepherd, one church, one body. 
And so you can see that happening, people coming together. And what this is going to look like 100 years from now, what it's going to look like even 50 years from now, remains to be seen. But it's a sign of the call to the whole church to reunite under the mantle of the Blessed Mother. It's her call to the whole church to unity in her son, Jesus. And so in this place, people come from all over the world, speaking an untold number of languages from cultures, from backgrounds, all different ages. And they just come to celebrate um, the Blessed Mother, you know. So beautiful. Well, Father John, it's hard to believe that our time is up, but I can't thank you enough for coming and sharing your love and your passion for these beautiful um, spiritual topics, you know, the shroud, pilgrimages, your visit to Walsingham and um, to the original Church of St. Gilbert. Can you provide us with just a a very short final blessing? Certainly. Um, Why don't we take the words right out of uh, the gospel um, so that we can finish uh, the way we began? Okay, so this is from this is from Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24, the appearance of Jesus to the disciples in Jerusalem. While they were still speaking about this, Jesus stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Then he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do questions arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch and see. And while they were still incredulous for joy and were amazed, he asked them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of baked fish, and he took it and ate it in their sight. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that he would remain with us always, even until the end of the age. May the Lord's peace come to reign and rule in our hearts and souls. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon each of us and remain with us forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. And thank you all for tuning in to this month's show, Fullness of Life. And until we meet again, I'm wishing you all this fullness of life. Bye. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae, Pizza Dulcedo, et spes nostra salve. A te clamamus, exules filiebe, a te suspiramus, gementes et flentes, in hoc lacrimarum vale. Ea ergo, advocata nostra, illus tuos misericordes oculos ad nos convete. Et Jesu, 
Fructum, fructum, patris tui, nobis post hoc exilium ostente. Virgo Maria.